This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Tuesday, December 12th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news, and then we're also going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Editor and Chief Film Critic, Chris Evangelista. Hi. Chris, I just wanted to give another shout out to this Mask of Zorro oral history that I wrote. I talked a little bit about that on the podcast. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. If people missed that episode, I just want people to read that article because it took months to put together. And that's all self-serving, self-promotion over. Uh, Okay, (laughs) let's jump into the news here. Um, Norman Lear passed away, one of the greatest TV producers of all time. He died at the age of 101. And I just wanted to mention that because he was like a totemic figure in the world of uh, television history. And I wanted to ask you, Chris, if you had a relationship with any of these Norman Lear shows. Like, I know you're a couple years older than me, so you didn't like, <laughs> you always talk about how old you are, Chris, but you didn't like come of age in the 70s or whatever when he was, yes. like, um, you know, when he was like in his real heyday. Yeah. But, you know, he, he was behind shows like, all in the family and Sanford and son and one day at a time and the Jeffersons and good times and stuff like that. I feel like I was just a, a couple years too young for, to, to catch reruns of those shows on, you know, Nick at night and stuff like that. But since you are a couple years older, older than me, did you grow up watching any of those shows when you were a kid? I definitely grew up watching uh, All in the Family. That was like a big uh, show when I was, was growing up on, on Nick at night and on reruns and, uh, it used to always be on at like my grandparents' house when I would go and visit them, and I used to watch it myself. I used to love uh, All in the Family. And I also just want to say, living to be 101 sounds like a nightmare. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, th- he was born July 27th, 1922, and just died on December 5th. So, like, what a life. I mean, talk about like witnessing just gigantic societal changes. Um, you know, that may be like the the period uh like the, the most um drastic social and and technological change uh i don't know in in history like I, I don't know maybe maybe some history major can can tell me that like oh actually from the year 1300 to 1400 things changed more drastically or something yeah. but um yeah just wild stuff so r.i.p to norman lear um also wanted to mention that um uh, Ryan O'Neill passed away, the the star of movies like Paper Moon and Barry Lyndon and Love Story. Uh, super complicated guy, I think it's it's fair to say. Like his his uh, real life uh, exploits were um, were not ideal. You could just put it that way. He has a lot of um, like real negative stories about him and his his actual persona. But like the movies that he left behind, 
are are kind of legendary. What was your relationship like with Ryan O'Neill and his movies, Chris? Yeah, like I can't comment on his personal. I know he's you know like you said wasn't wasn't the best guy, but uh, my from a acting standpoint, uh, I don't know if I would call him a great actor, but he was very good in certain roles. And like Barry Lyndon, he's so good at that. Like I can't picture anyone else in that movie. He's perfect for that role of this guy who is just a piece of shit who climbs his way up <laughs> in through society. And he plays it so well. He plays it just perfectly. This guy who just, you know, stumbles his way into becoming rich. And then, you know, it, it all comes crashing down in the end. And uh, he's just so good in that. He's, he's, and he's also great in um what's up doc, which, you know, is uh Peter Bogdanovich's screwball comedy with, with Barbara Streisand and, uh, so yeah, yeah, you know, not a great guy, pretty good actor. Yeah, yeah, man. What's up, Doc? Like, if you've not seen that movie, I just watched it recently for the first time and was really bowled over by it. So um, take the opportunity to to check that one out. I think there's a lot to enjoy there, even outside of O'Neill's performance. He plays much more of like a, a straight man, and Barbara Streisand is like the real draw of that movie. But um, okay, so uh, since the last time we did a news episode. James Gunn's DC Universe has cast uh, Sean Gunn as the new Maxwell Lord, who is the character who is played by Pedro Pascal in Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, Chris, I, I went back and re-listened to some of our conversations about Wonder Woman 1984 right when that movie came out, like middle of COVID. Uh, and I think we were just not very kind to that movie because it, it wasn't very good. It's a bad <laughs> and, movie. Yeah. Um, I, I was going back, like hoping to be reminded of like, Oh yeah, I remember really loving this one aspect of it or something. So I could like say something positive about it, but uh, I, I did not. Um, so e- even Pedro Pascal's Maxwell Lord, like he was just this kind of like over the top parody of like a Donald Trump, 1980s businessman. Um when you think back on that movie, do you think back fondly on that performance? Like, you know, him chewing scenery. Do you think that was like a, a part of the movie that made it better than it otherwise might've been? I mean, I guess he was okay. Like nothing in that movie works really. It's just a mess. It's a messy, weirdly bad movie. And I guess he's like one of the least offensive parts of it. So good for him. But I also feel like this is an easy thing to to recast because no one is going to be like, how can you replace the original Maxwell Lord? Like no one cares. Like I, I bet people don't even remember that character is in that movie. So I like, yeah, it's not like a huge deal. Yeah. I, I wrote uh, the news for slash on when this came out and um, I, I was doing a little bit of a, a deep dive because I'm certainly not like, you know, up on all of my DC comics history or anything, but evidently this character, when he was first introduced was like a businessman responsible for helping to form the justice league behind the scenes uh, only for it to be revealed that he was actually under the control of a computer program that had some sort of dastardly <laughs> intentions of, of dominating the world or whatever. Um, so I thought that would be a cool opportunity for them to sort of revisit what this character could be. Like instead of Sean Gunn, who you may know as Craglin from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, uh, he's also James Gunn's, I think, brother uh, or cousin, certainly related in some way. Um, His brother. Okay. Yeah. So like instead of just Sean Gunn doing a, a riff on what Pedro Pascal did, like kind of reinterpret the character a little bit, take him back to the origins. And I I was speculating about that in the article. And then 
uh, a couple days ago, James Gunn actually took to Instagram and said, calling Maxwell Lord a villain seems reductionist as he was originally portrayed in Justice League International, made him one of my favorite characters. So it sounds like maybe James Gunn and I are on on the same page there. So uh, we could be getting like a slightly different version of Maxwell Lord. Um, Thankfully, I don't think this character is going to be like a big part of Superman Legacy, which is a very, very crowded movie. Um, We've talked in the past about how that film you know, is going to kick off this uh, DC, this new DC universe and sort of serve as like a a reboot point for it in a way. Um, But the interesting, one of the interesting things about that movie is that uh, Clark Kent slash Superman is going to be existing in a world where superheroes already exist. So there are a ton of supporting characters in this movie already. And I was worried that, man, just bringing Max Lord in here, like as this other villain is just going to make things more complicated, but it sounds like he's just barely going to have a cameo maybe in this movie and then just appear in further DC universe projects down the line. So uh, we'll see how that all shakes out. Um, We got word early this morning, Chris, that uh, Jigsaw's games will continue. There's going to be a new Saw movie coming out in September of 2024. So 10 months from now, basically. Um, did you see Saw X and, and what did you think about it? If so, I did. And believe it or not, I think it's like the best Saw movie somehow. Like I, I sort of, I'm not like a big Saw fan. I actually think these movies are kind of bad, but Saw X is like genuinely good. Like they, they did something different where they made it all about Jigsaw for once instead of like, you know, having him be like a supporting player. And he's like, the movie is like focused on Jigsaw and that ends up, making it like the best Saw movie I've, I've ever seen. Like even better than the first one, which I actually don't think is, is that great. So I'm very curious to see what they do now because uh, this isn't a spoiler to say, but the, the timeline of the Saw movies is very complicated because uh, Jigsaw, the character is, is technically dead. He got killed off in Saw three, but then they realize that the character, everyone loves the character so much and, and they love Tobin Bell, the actor who plays the character so much that they're like, well, we can't get rid of them. So they keep trying to find ways to bring him back. And Saw X is technically a, like a prequel set. Uh, I forget when it's set, but it's set like... Uh, I think it's in between one and two or something yeah. like that. So I'm guessing they're going to keep doing that and be like, this is also a prequel because this is what people <laughs> want. So they've got to paint themselves into a corner and they have to keep going back in time because otherwise, you know, Jigsaw is dead. So <laughs> it's it's a very strange saga. So are you excited about the idea of like, you know, picking up in that in that same timeline, like another prequel before the events of Saw 3 and like, you know, seeing Tobin Bell return again? You know, I you know normally I would say no, but after Saw X, I'm kind of like, yeah, I want to see what they do because I really liked Saw X. So okay. I guess we'll, we'll see what happens. They, they've got a few months to to crack the code. <laughs> um, so speaking of cracked codes, uh, there is a new Mr. and Mrs. Smith TV show that is coming to prime video. Um, I think they're doing like nine episodes or eight, eight or nine episodes uh, on February 2nd of 2024. And this show was originally supposed to star Donald Glover and uh, Phoebe Waller bridge, but they parted ways because of creative differences. And I think they made it clear, like, you know, th- there's no bad blood here. We just like weren't on the same page about what the show could be. And Maya Erskine, who was in uh, Pen15, which is this terrific show on Hulu. If you've never seen that, definitely go seek that out, uh, has stepped in. And so the two of them are leading this show. And Mr. And Mrs. Smith obviously was a movie in 2005. Doug Lyman directed it. Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. It was like a gigantic 
tabloid sensation because of their real life romance sort of spilling out and, and taking over the cultural world, basically. Um, but it was kind of this, you know, fun movie about a, a married couple who were living this boring married life and neither one of them knew that the other one was secretly a spy. And then they're basically uh, tasked with killing the other one. Um, and, uh, and now this new TV show is happening, but they're not taking the exact same premise here. So instead uh, of being, you know, of having years of marriage under their belts, these characters, the ones played by Donald Glover and my Erskine are thrown together by their agency into a fake marriage as basically part of a cover story. And then they slowly begin to develop real feelings for each other. Um, and I, I just feel like that's a really smart change. That's a much more vibrant, dramatic way to tell this story because the idea of a boring marriage necessitates creating imagery to, <laughs> to get that point across to the audience. And so that's kind of boring to watch like montages of boring home life mundanity and stuff like that. And this show seems to be just dispensing with all of that and uh, allowing the audience to be engaged in a more active way with their relationship here. And the first trailer came out and I thought it was really good. And it, it has this clear James Bond uh, theme song kind of vibe going on in the background. And it's this really globe trotting type of thing. So uh, are you interested in, in this show at all, Chris? You know, I, I I didn't love the movie, but I do admit that the the, the change up of the premise sounds intriguing so maybe I'll, maybe i'll give it a chance but a part of me feels like the only reason the movie was a hit is because it was two really hot people who were having an affair at the time and that's what made it like so everyone was like we got to see this movie about these hot people who are having an affair and they're in a movie together so it's like you can't really recreate that like it's like a lightning in a bottle situation so i don't really know if there's an, gonna even gonna be like an audience for this movie that uh, show but yeah well, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I'm I'm curious because, uh, well, for those reasons, but also because like uh, this feels like a different kind of thing for Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Like they're both known for comedies, you know, the Community and Atlanta and Pen15 and stuff like that. And and this is like them in action mode and like with a side of you know simmering romance or whatever. So like. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie had both already done action stuff in their careers before they appeared in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And this is like a new mode for these two actors. So I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, how, how they do and, and like what that project looks like with them sort of in, in the lead of it. So, um, okay, let, let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about what we've been watching. All right, Chris, you and I had a chance to watch a couple movies recently. Uh, let's talk about Anatomy of a Fall first. Um, this is a movie that's in theaters right now. And uh, yeah, why don't you set the stage for this one, Chris? What did you think about this? Uh, I dug it. Um, Anatomy of a Fall is a, it's a French movie. It's partially in French. It's also partially in English. It's kind of like they, they change it up. Um, but it's technically a French film. Um, it's about... Uh, uh, this woman, she's a writer and she's played by Sandra Huller. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying her name wrong, but she's a German actress. And um, they're, she and her husband and her son are living uh, in this uh, chalet in, um, in France. They're like up in the mountains and it's snowy and, and very isolated. And uh, one day her husband is found uh, outside the house dead. His head is bashed in and he, you know, all, all that's clear is that he fell from high up. And uh, her story is that he must have fallen either by accident or died by suicide. But 
the you know the law enforcement the local law enforcement really thinks that she uh pushed him or threw him off a balcony or so did something to kill him basically mm-hmm. and so she goes to trial and uh there's no witnesses the only person who can sort of back up her story is her son but he happens to be blind due to an accent he's 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 uh, visually impaired so he can't really speak to he can't he didn't really see anything but he you know uh, he he was there around the time that the the death happened, so it mm-hmm. becomes this whole like, did she do it? Did, you know, or you know, is she covering things up? And it's it's all about like how we never really know the people we're married to or people we we think we know, and it's just like a simmering adult courtroom drama, and it, it's really well made. The acting is 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 really great. It's it's a very tense movie, and uh, there's a really good dog in the movie. Mm-hmm. A very good dog actor. <laughs> I, I was very interested in that dog. I hope that dog wins an award of, of some sort. Yeah, there's a there's a moment not to really give much away, but there's a moment um, where something bad happens to the dog, and I was like, how on earth did they actually film this? And I was listening to I think it was the Directors Guild of America podcast, and um, Justine Trier, I think is how you pronounce the the director's name um was basically saying that like that actually was really that dog doing you know performing those actions i'll be vague about it um and it just took a lot of training to get the dog to be able to do that and i was i was really like blown away by the dog performance in the, in the movie so i just looked it up and the dog won the palm dog award at the Cannes film festival <laughs> so this dog actually did win an award <laughs> amazing so good, good job dog yes um yeah man i i really 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 love this movie i thought like you know, as the trial goes on, we learn that things are much more complicated than it seems in this marriage. And in particular, there's this flashback scene of this argument between Sandra Huller's character and her husband. And I mean, you're talking about how good the acting is. This was one of the most powerful bits of acting I've seen all year. They really like rip into each other and get super raw about the um, perceived shortcomings of the other person. And it's like, the kind of thing that you're you almost feel bad for watching like it's too real too personal like we're being too voyeuristic seeing it yeah. um but sandra holler is like a total powerhouse in this movie i thought she was great um and yeah i think you you've said it well like it's about how we never really know the people that we're with i also think this movie kind of loves sitting in the ambiguity of everything like you're meant to be watching this whole thing wondering if she killed her husband and um I don't know, that may frustrate people because the movie is like, it it really enjoys um, kind of setting you up as the audience member to make your own decision. Like it's kind of arming you with information. You're supposed to be like tracking all of this and formulating an opinion about whether or not you think she did it. And in the process, the movie itself seems to be like interrogating our own biases and and sort of relationship with crime stories and things like that. So I I just thought it was like a really subtle, but like sophisticated movie. And, and yeah, it's like two and a half hours. It's a crime drama. It's just really, really, really well done. So um, that is called anatomy of a fall. It's in theaters right now. Uh, We also watched the zone of interest, which comes out in theaters. um, I think it's this Friday. It gets a limited release. And um, this one's pretty bleak, Chris. This is not exactly like the feel-good movie of the year. Um, the, the basic concept here is that it's a story that is set just outside the wall of Auschwitz during World War II. And uh, it's about this Nazi family. And coincidentally, Sandra Huller, who the yeah. star of Anatomy of a Fall, is also one of the stars of this movie. She plays the, the matriarch of a family that lives in in this really beautiful house that is like literally right up against the wall of 
this concentration camp. And it's about, um, you, you never, in, in the entire movie, you never see what happens in Auschwitz, but you always hear stuff in the background. You hear people screaming, you hear gunshots, you hear like just all these terrible sounds. And you that, see like smoke coming out of Yes, like, oh my God. Like yeah, it's uh, it's very disturbing. But the movie is, is much more about like... Um, you know, just the, this, the family life of these uh, these Nazi war criminals, basically, who were living here. And um, what did you think about this movie, Chris? This I is, feel like this has been pretty divisive. I I hesitate to say I love this movie, but this is because this is like one of the most horrifying movies I've ever seen. But this blew me away. This is like in my top five movies of the year because it's so well made. Uh, it's uh, I, I don't want to give too much away because it's not even out yet, but. Without saying what happens, there's this sort of montage at the end of the movie that, like, like I felt like my body was like burning up. Like I was, yeah. like, I was like feverish watching it. I was like, "Holy shit! I can't believe they're like they're doing this mont like the way they do it." And uh, I, like I want to talk about it more, but I don't want to give it away. But um, we got to talk about it in our moments of the year list. Like the ending of this movie is unreal. It's like I, I've never like. I, I, this is going to sound hyperbolic, but I, like I've never seen anything like this the way they do it. Um, this is from Jonathan Glazer, who who is just a phenomenal filmmaker. He made Under the Skin, which I think is like one of the best movies of the 21st century. And um, I still have not seen that, Chris. Oh, I really need so, to get around to watching that. It's so good. It's so good. Um, and but uh, you know, this movie is just really just about the, the the banality of evil because it's you know these people are terrible people, but they're shown just going about their lives in this like sunshiny way. Like the Sandra Huller character, like she treats the house at Auschwitz like this vacation home, basically. Like she just loves being there. And part of the plot point is her husband, uh, Rudolf Haas, who is a real person. who's was like the real commandant of Auschwitz is set to be transferred. And she's like furious. Cause she's like, I want to stay here. Like, you know, I love this house. I love living at Auschwitz basically. And it's something so nightmarish about this that like, mere inch like feet away from where they're living people are just being exterminated basically people mm-hmm. are just being horribly killed and to her it's like the best place on earth it's like a get it's like heaven to her and it, there's something so insidious about that that it just like it uh, this movie fucked me up man yeah like, <laughs> like after i watched it i was just like it's like a haunting movie like i i watched it over the weekend and i'm still thinking about certain scenes of it just the way it plays out so you know, it's not an easy watch. It's not like a feel good movie. Like you're not going to come away from this being like, I'm glad I watched that, but I definitely think this is one of the best movies of the year because it's so powerful and it's so haunting and it's just, it's, it's a, it's a nightmare of a movie. It's, it's like nothing overtly just, it's so weird because they don't, like you said, they don't show anything overtly disturbing. Like Schindler's list has more disturbing depictions of the Holocaust, in it. Mm-hmm. but the way it, the Holocaust is treated in this movie in this sort of like banal, like, yeah, that just, it's just something that's happening is, is just horrifying. Yeah. It's just a, it's, it's an incredible film. Yeah, there's a scene where these guys come and pitch a crematorium design to the Nazis for potential installation at Auschwitz, where they're all just like sitting around and looking at the blueprints and thinking about efficiency and practicality. And like the human element is completely removed from the picture at all. It's just, you know, how do we do our jobs here and like make money on this, you know, this, this 
tragedy on a scale that's like unimaginable. It's it's really horrifying. But at the same time, there, like you said, there's just this gorgeous filmmaking that's happening too. Like there's this deep focus shot. I, this I like paused the shot because I just had to like take everything in. Um, I was lucky enough to watch this movie on a screener because uh, award season voting is coming up. Um, but uh, it, there's a, a deep focus shot that takes place in the family's yard with a clothing line in the foreground. And a person is like hanging clothes and, and there are sheets obscuring a big part of the frame and soldiers are off to one side of it. And there are aircraft flying overhead and things are happening on like five or six different planes of depth in the same shot. And it honestly reminded me of something out of Citizen Kane. I was just like, man, the blocking, the staging of the shot is just like unbelievable. And um, yeah, man, I, I just, I, I'm in a, in the same boat as you. I just feel like this is one of the best movies of the year. It's, it's a real tough watch, but like, it's an extremely powerful allegory that feels shockingly relevant to what's happening in the world today. Like, this feels like a call to action movie. It's practically begging the audience not to sit on the sidelines and just bear witness to atrocities that happen in the world. Um, it's just a, a really, really powerful movie. So that's called The Zone of Interest. Uh, it comes out on December 15th. Take um, the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I can't imagine. Uh, that, that would be, yeah, quite a bleak family yes, watch. Don't actually do that. But, oh, man, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, it, like, like we said, this is absolutely worth seeing, but be, yeah. be, be forewarned. It is not an easy movie to sit through. Yeah. Um, something that was much more fun to sit through is a movie called Poor Things, which um, I think you said before we started recording that you saw this like back around Thanksgiving. I just watched it recently. Uh, I don't think you talked about it on the podcast, did you? No. Okay. So what did you think about Poor Things? Hey, this has been just jumping in and post here to let you know that we're about to spoil Poor Things, um, or at least an element of it. I mean, you can still listen to this conversation without having seen the movie, and it's not going to give that much away, but it just gives away an element that is not in the trailers or any of the marketing or anything. So I just figured better safe than sorry, might as well drop a little spoiler warning in here, uh, just in case people care about that stuff. So uh, here's the rest of our conversation about Poor Things. This is your final warning to pause the conversation and then come back if you care about the movie and don't want to be spoiled. Here we go. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a delightful, uh, twisted movie. Um, how do you say his name? Yorgos, Yorgos, Yorgos Lanthimos, I think. Yeah. Right. So I was very cold on his early movies. A lot of people love them. I did not love them because I found them really cruel, like needlessly cruel. And it wasn't until The Favorite, uh, which has um, Rachel Weisz and uh, Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman won the Oscar for it, and uh, Emma Stone is in that as well as this. That was the first movie of his I watched where I was like, oh, I absolutely love this. And uh, that felt less cruel. Even though it has like cruel stuff in it, it felt less like nasty. And this feels even less cruel. And so I feel like now he's like turning this corner where he's he's not so committed to making movies that are just like unrelentingly mean. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I've, I've like turned a corner on him. Like, because I really like this too. I like the favorite more than this, but I really like this too. And this feels like his most... Uh, optimistic, I guess, movie yet. Like it's his least pessimistic movie. And I, mm. it's kind of fascinating to have watched his, his career do this trajectory where he started off just being very bleak and unforgiving. And he's slowly sort of become a more, uh, ex I guess, accessible filmmaker, I guess mm -hmm. you would call it. So uh, yeah, I, I really like this. Emma Stone is phenomenal in this. Like, I think this is probably her like best performance that she's ever given where, uh, for those who don't know, Emma Stone is playing uh, a, a reanimated corpse in this movie. So she's she's a woman who, uh, she died by suicide. She was a pregnant woman who died by suicide. And 
uh, Willem Dafoe is this sort of mad scientist, Dr. Frankenstein character who takes her body, takes the bait, the brain of the baby and puts it in her head and brings her back to life. And so we sort of watch her develop into an adult. Like she starts, even though she has an adult body, she's very childish. And the film follows her as she goes on this like globe hot, popping tour of the world and slowly matures into a a more well-rounded person. And it's just a, (laughs) excuse me, just a really strange and funny and uh, very sex positive film, which I'm sure will, upset all the nerds out there who are like we shouldn't have sex scenes in movies so but yeah i I really dug this man the the aspect that you talked about how this was basically the you know her her the child brain being put back into the mother's body I, i had no idea that that was a part of this movie and i was like blown away just by that conceptually like who the hell came up with that and and that also like on one level like that's so disturbing how could anyone come up with that but also it's so uh, compelling that like how has that never been a plot point in a major you know story before um, so I, I was kind of like very taken by that and and yeah I'm right there with you I thought Emma Stone was sensational in this it's so nice Chris to see Mark Ruffalo get to play somebody other than Bruce Banner again yes. like um, they are both really really going for it and he is having a lot of fun as this awful like villainous character who sort of is like her fuck boy for lack of a better term and like uh sort of whisks her around the world and then um falls under her spell and and just becomes like this this pathetic sad sack of a figure um but like what did you think about the production design and the costume design and stuff like this really heightened world that lanthimos created here yeah it's great it's very like surrealist and uh almost like a terry gilliam movie uh and the the costume design is is wonderful just these like everything Emma Stone wears in this movie is just like big and flowing and it looks incredible. And like, it's really like those things where you just can't help but notice the costume. Like some movies you don't like focus on the costume design, but in this movie you can't help but do it. Cause it's mm-hmm. like this sort of uh, like the movie exists in this like sort of weird, it's like a steampunk world, I guess. Yeah. You could call it. Cause it's like, it's not really clear when this is taking place and it's like the past, but there's things that obviously they wouldn't have it. And the, like the sky is like this swirly weird Dr. Seussian sort of sky. So it's just a very strange surrealist look to the film that uh, just adds to the, 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 the bizarre nature of the movie itself. Yeah. I thought that was kind of cool. Cause you can, uh, you know, on one level you could just take it as fact, but on another level you could almost see it as like through Emma Stone's character's eyes, like just, being because part of the movie is about her basically being um constricted to living in this home of Willem Dafoe's sort of Dr. Frankenstein-esque character and then the movie is kind of about Mark Ruffalo's character like taking her outside of that um you know almost like compound prison type of life that she's been living and like introducing her to the real real world so you can almost see that sort of heightened stuff and like the bizarre colors of everything and the weird sky and like the fact that there are cars that seem to be flying across the sky and stuff you can almost take that as like a metaphor for her just like having her mind opened to the you know the the actual reality of what the real world is like um so it doesn't necessarily need to be taken literally so i thought that was a cool you know sort of like balance that the movie struck of of providing that like you know giving you multiple ways to read that if you want to um and uh yeah for a movie that that is so otherworldly. I thought it actually did a pretty good job of feeling like it was actually about something understandable. Like the, the character that her, 
or I'm sorry, the, the journey that her character goes on, it feels like she actually learns real lessons about humanity and relationships and, and the world. You know, there, there's parts where she like uh, tries to give somebody money to give to the poor and she just like gives it to a third party and they obviously just pocket the money. And she's like so naive that she doesn't understand that that's what they were going to do. And she like slowly, you know, that's just like one of the many lessons that she sort of picks up along the way uh, on this movie. So I, th- I thought it was a really, really good film that has like, yeah, some of the most dazzle, dazzling visuals that uh, that I've seen all year. So um, Poor Things is in theaters right now. Um, I also had a chance to watch uh, 20 Days in Mariupol, which is um, a documentary about the war in Ukraine. And I was trying to to cross a few more documentaries off my list before you know we get to, to this voting period at the end of the year. And you can watch this movie on uh, for free on YouTube right now. Anybody can. But like, I, I kind of don't recommend that you do because this movie is, um, it's about the true horrors of war. There are dead children and injured civilians and bombed out neighborhoods and like encroaching Russians in this, this Ukrainian city. And there's this huge sense of dread that hangs over the whole thing. But like, I, I don't know who this movie is for. Like the filmmakers work for the Associated Press and a lot of the footage that they shot that appears in this movie was released to the world and sort of helped reveal that Russia was committing war crimes. So like the act of capturing that footage and, and sending it out to everybody is obviously incredibly important. I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything like that, but the act of then turning it into a feature length documentary, I kind of feel like the only reason for doing that is to collect all the footage in one place for posterity or something like this is not going to change anyone's mind about that war. Like, obviously Putin and Russia are just going to call it disinformation. And then the entire rest of the world has probably already seen at least some of that footage on the news and knows how terrible the situation is there. So I guess the only people that this would be for quote unquote would be maybe people who've not paid any attention to that war at all over the past two years. And like who need a wake up call about what's really going on over there. I don't know. Um, But if at the same time, like if that's somebody's mindset, at this point, they're not going to actively seek out this movie. So like, how would anyone ever watch that? I don't know. I I'm, I'm, was kind of baffled by this whole thing because it just, a lot of it feels like wallowing in misery. Um, you know, if you think the zone of interest is like misery porn or something, then like this movie is like, it actually shows the stuff that zone of interest does not show, um, which is just, yeah, horrifying and like very depressing and, uh, I just wasn't quite sure what the what the point of it was or like why it exists. So, um, Chris, do yourself a favor and don't watch this. <laughs> yeah, I've, um, I've heard it's a really unpleasant like yeah. So I, I've pretty much been avoiding it before that reason. Yeah. Um, so just a little PSA there, but uh, but man, Anatomy Fall and Zone of Interest and Poor Things. I think like three bangers as we get to the end of the year here. And uh, I mean, it's weird to call Zone of Interest a banger, but like just the, the filmmaking, as we said, is like so audacious and and um, yeah, just definitely worth seeking those three out. So. Uh, okay, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about all the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. SlashFilmDaily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.